Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the, well, we're about two-thirds of the way through our structured study of jhana meditation. Um, this sutta is on the Magavabhanga Sutta, the analysis of the Eightfold Path. Uh, this follows um, David's brilliant teaching on the, the second class on the Sakavabhanga Sutta, the analysis of the Four Noble Truths. And so David taught us uh, the second, third, and fourth noble truth the fourth noble truth being the Eightfold Path. And so that leads to this. And um, I think you'll notice um, all of these suttas um, are describing in a very simple and basic way how this is done and why we do it. Um, and this is the path that we develop, that we integrate into our lives. Um, jhana meditation being one factor that supports the integration of the other seven factors. So, the Magavabhanga Sutta, the analysis of the Eightfold Path. I have heard that, let me just describe what that means, and I, I've stripped this um, introduction out from a, a lot of suttas, and, I, and I, I don't want to get into the explanation, it's not all that important, and some of them I've left in. So whenever you hear, I have heard, and it's usually written, thus have I heard, um, and that's always Ananda's recounting. And probably um, 50% or more, maybe 65% um, begin with that. And so we know that this is Ananda's recounting. I have heard that, that at one time the Buddha was staying at Savati, at Jita's Grove, Anathapandika's monastery. There he addressed those assembled. Friends, you know this one? Because <laughs> that man reading out of the side of his head? Friends, one of the funniest these scenes I've ever thought I just remembered. It was a W.C. Fields movie where he was standing in a hole and a woman walked by him. He's just sticking out of that hole. <laughs> just, you know, just about half his body. And someone walks by and that droll wit of W.C. Fields, you hear this woman say, is that man standing in a hole? <laughs> Friends, I will now give you a detailed analysis of the Noble Eightfold Path. Listen mindfully. <clears throat> this is the Noble Eightfold Path. So just notice by using, we use words to describe what we're trying to, to convey. And the use of the English word is obviously coming through many, many, many translations through different <coughs> languages of different cultures. But all describing a right and a wrong condition or quality of the, of the mind. And again, this is where um, the Dhamma becomes very black and white. We're either resting in wrong view or we're stuck in, we're either resting in right view, view or we're stuck in wrong view. And uh, as with all of the other um, aspects of the Eightfold Path, this is a noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. These are the only things that we need to attend to uh, and the only things we should attend to and integrate as our 
um, Dhamma practice. Uh, the Buddha didn't teach a one-fold path, meaning meditation only, and he didn't teach an eight-fold path as a foundation for clinging other things to it and making a nine and a ten and an eleven and an infinite-fold path. When we keep it simple and structured, which is the only way the Buddha ever taught this, we can develop it. As soon as we in- introduce anything, you know, it's like the, it's like a fly in, a, in the ointment. It, it, it destroys the, the entire batch, right? And the same thing is true of this. And we like to, um, because of our own um, real need to establish our, continually establish our ego in everything we do, it is at that this point that people have difficulty with this practice. And it really is why most of modern Buddhism discounts or dismisses entirely the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path as Dhamma practice when there is no Dhamma practice without this understanding. But we do this because this Eightfold Path is so spare. Um, this can feel like true asceticism to people that think they're practicing asceticism by going on silent retreats or, or um, fasting for a spiritual purpose once a week or once a month, whatever that might be, or doing other deprivations that we think that simply we're, because we're denying our own humanity for a few minutes or a few days, that somehow that will bring us an understanding. It never has and never will. But when we practice this, and meaning it never has and it never will develop the understanding that the Buddha teaches, it might, it might and will have other benefits. Um, when we keep it this pure, we are able to develop it. As soon as we engage in some other right practice, we're losing the entire Eightfold Path. And so then, the Buddha just doesn't say these things that we all understand. Everybody can conceptualize what right speech or right action might be, which would probably fall into some kind of... Um, religiosity influence behavior rather than um, acting skillfully because it is in ours and everyone else's best interest. It's a direct connection with the essence of humanity rather than taking an indirect course through concepts and ideas. So, as I'm reading this, ask yourself, is there anything here that you don't think you can do? And I'm, I'm asking that in a rhetorical way because I think you'll see they're all simple and capable, and human beings are capable of every one of these, so why not? What is right view? Right view is knowledge with regards to stress. So the, right away, the beginning, the Buddha begins with what is most important? Why are we doing this? Knowledge with regards to stress. So some people, um, especially people with a, a very intellectual bent, will usually stop there and say, I don't have to go any further. I know exactly what right speech is. And usually that right speech is speech that that allows them to keep the narrative going. That's their right speech. In other words, right speech is, is right speech only when it gives us what we want, gets us the next donut. That's wrong speech, isn't it? But when I think I need to have two or three donuts, and so rather than practicing wise restraint, I continue to tell the story, but yeah, it's okay for I have one or two more donuts because, well, tomorrow I'll, I'll fast or whatever it might be. And so, <coughs> excuse me, we engage in a type of internal wrong speech that when, it, when that speech leads to our reward, we now call it right speech because we got what we wanted out of it. The Buddha's doing exactly the same thing as I want another donut. Let me figure out a way to get it. 
But what he's saying is you have established what you want. We want knowledge with regards to stress. So that's all that I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the knowledge or the, or the continued wrong speech that I can mischaracterize as right speech because it gives me what I want. The Buddha is saying, no, use your speech, including that internal dialogue, to recognize and develop knowledge of stress. Period. Stop there. That's all that we're doing. Does anybody think that you can't develop knowledge of your own contributions to stress? Honestly, does anybody think they can't do that? Speak up now. Please, because you're out. Again, just to make the point, Jen, please. So you're saying that the only... Did you say that the only internal dialogue should be internal dialogue that leads to understanding the knowledge or, or developing the knowledge of stress. Yes, I'm saying that. That's the only internal dialogue. Yes, and how does that resolve? I know you... Oh, it's great because then you can release internal dialogue that's not yes. around that and you're just... That's how you stop engaging in eye-making. That's how you release eye-making in, in, in the moment-by-moment. Drop, drop the story. Wow. Yes. Now, will you, can yeah. you say that again? I know some, it's yeah, hard to so go back funny. and say It's so funny. My students make me do that, ask me to do that no, all but the time, I, and then I, I just turn to another student and go, did you get what I said? Well, you can do that. <laughs> you, you, if you want to do that, who's, uh, who do you want to pick? So you're saying, no, 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 I'm going to try to do it again. So, because I need to do it for me. The only kind of internal dialogue that you should engage in or allow to continue within your mind is internal dialogue that leads to understanding the no- or developing the knowledge of stress. And so when you recognize that you're internally considering um, something other than something that develops anything other than knowledge of stress, you can allow that to go. You can let it go. You can, you can redirect your thinking to... You can kind of zoom out on your thinking a little bit and say, oh, this is just conditioned thinking. I can just allow... I can just let that go. I don't have... There's nothing to figure out here. There's yes. nothing to like... Yes. I don't need to continue to try to work this out. I can just let it go, breathe. It's going to keep going, but just kind of let it pass away. Yes. And the, the first time you went through that, you concluded by saying, we, we then get to st- drop the story. Yeah, drop the, the story. The fabricated story that yeah. we use to continue our own ignorance. And it, it is within that story that we do it. Of course it is, isn't it? You know, we, we continually, and we're con- continually um, adding to and rewriting that story. It gets more elaborate, more intricate. We have more of a vested interest in our own story the longer we continue it. You know, and, that, and it's just that. So what is that, what is it, what's the, um, what's the quality of mind and quality of life when we're settled in that right view, when we're, when we're resting in the knowledge of stress? How do we get there? This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. That's the end of the story, isn't it? 
because I've stopped telling the story. Mm-hmm. And it's, that is knowledge with regards to stress. That's what it, that, that, because the story is maintained in, in the stress is maintained in the story. And so we drop the story, we drop the stress. It's so interesting that Jen used those words because I spent three days hanging out with Larry Carlson. Uh, uh, Matt and Kevin and I uh, went out there. And one of the things he asked me to do was speak at a local AA meeting out there where he lives um, in Bridgehampton, Long Island. And so, um, so I was speaking with Larry as we're walking. <laughs> you wouldn't believe this flight of stairs that I walked up to get there. We, we got to the place and it, we just, you know, not everybody thinks about everything about the other person they're with. <laughs> so we get to this really beautiful old, old church. It was at the old Whalers Church, which was built like the 1650s, which is amazing wow. enough. And so the, the meeting room, though, is way up on the second floor of this building. And, it, and it's a it's one of these staircases that wind around. And so that wind around part of the staircase by necessity has very narrow steps. So it was about yeah, the most yeah. complicated stairs that I could ever get up. And Larry says, no, 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 we, we're not going to do it. Let's go home, I'll, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'm, I'm going up. And it wasn't like I, the, my heroic journey. I knew I could do it, but it wasn't easy. But as we're approaching the steps, I'm, we're, I'm, we're, we're still engaged in a conversation. And a conversation is tying recovery from alcoholism to the 12 steps in the context of the Eightfold Path. And so I'm, I'm talking to Larry about this and how important it is and how the 12 steps work within the context of AA to get us to, to drop the story of our own alcoholism. And so we don't keep recreating in our minds the conditions to keep drinking and drugging. And there's a famous book within the alcoholism circles called Drop the Rock, which I know Larry had read. And I said, it's just the same thing. And Drop the Rock is basically as it relates to the difficulties of alcoholism as we, as we carry this rock, which is our, our self-centered behavior around with us. And if we continue to carry the rock, we can never drink. But we, we'll, we'll drink and drug again or do other compulsive behaviors. So the simple answer is drop the rock or drop the story. And so it, it is in that context. And of course, when I said it, Larry's draw a job dropped because I'm, I'm such a brilliant and insightful. Um, no, because he understood it. That, yeah, that the, and he, he's, he's made the connection that for him to recover, he has to drop the rock. And now he made the connection between dropping the rock and dropping the story entirely. Mm. And it's interesting that the 12 step, not to, I'm not trying to sell 12 steps, mm. just the interest interesting connections between a program that is designed to reduce self-centered behavior and its connections to a path that's designed to entirely abandon self-referential behavior. So the last, the 12th step of these brilliant steps is to practice these, continue to grow along so-called spiritual lines. In my mind, that we're not growing along spiritual lines. We're growing along entirely practical human lines. And to me, again, that's the same thing. That the highest spirit that a human being can achieve, I think, is understanding what it means to be a human being. So, wow, this was going to be a short class, but now it's not. But this is the resolution. So the first aspect of right view is knowledge with regards to stress. Right view is also knowledge with regards to the origination of stress, which is ignorance of four noble truths manifesting as 
a, a continued grasping after type of behavior. I mean, always grasping after what I desire because of um, uncontrolled senses or the, the, the um, aversion, another type of grasping after, isn't it? Uh, anything that I decide I don't want to have in my life, which might be, um, as the Buddha first describes as birth, sickness, aging, and death. Birth meaning, I'm, um, I don't want this life, it has to be different. That's, th- that's saying, I don't want to have a human life, I don't want to be born, but we're here. The Buddha says, birth, you're here, you're having a human life. Get over it. Guess what? You're also going to get sick sometimes. You're going to age, and at some point you're going to die. So forget about taking any of that personally, including the end. Don't worry about it. Drop that rock. Drop the story. Knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress. And that begins when we drop the story. When we recognize it's a story that continues stress, it's dropping the story, dropping the narrative, dropping the constant eye-making. Does everybody understand? Knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress. It's the direct experience of in this moment. And how does that knowledge develop? <clears throat> Jen just described it beautifully. We get caught up in that, that internal web of ignorance, but eventually through the Dhamma we get to drop the story. If we want to. Some people are so enamored, another word would be clinging or attached to their story, that it seems literally impossible. We've seen so many people come through this class, those of us that have been here for 10 or 12 years, however long we've been doing it, have seen seen people that come here and are wowed by what they're hearing. But they cannot, they refuse to themselves to drop the story. It's just too important to them. No matter how much pain it brings them, I could not drop the story that I was an alcoholic and a drug addict because the story allowed me to keep going. The best thing I ever heard for my alcoholism was when I was diagnosed at 15 as an alcoholic. To me, that didn't mean there was a problem that gave me license to drink and drug. It was what, it was what I was. And I refused to drop the story, even though it brought me to the brink of death literally twice, at least, that I know of, maybe more. And that's the, that's the strong determination or wrong effort, if you will, that we humans engage in to keep our story going. Knowledge with regards to stress, knowledge with regards to the origination of stress, my own ignorance, knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress, of stress, the recognition and the abandonment of that very ignorance. And how do I do it? I do it with gaining knowledge with regards to the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. Utter simplicity. Nothing could be simpler than this. Would anybody argue with that? And please do if you want to, if you think there, it, it deserves an argument. We're not against arguendo when it's within the context of the Dharma. And there, how could there be any argument with this? It's so plain and straightforward, isn't it? The problem, the resolution. It's only for a few, though. <laughs> Thank you, David. It's only for a few, only for those with a, with a speck of dust in their eyes. That doesn't mean it's elitist. And in fact, it doesn't mean that it's hard Except it's like, it's like the Buddha described to Ananda one day when Ananda said dependent origination is easy to understand. And the Buddha says, no, it's not. And this is what he meant, that it's deep. It's hard to penetrate. And you can't... It, because most people aren't... Um, it's not that pe- people don't have the ability. They're simply not inclined because they're so stuck 
on the story, please, David. And there can't be any version of a leap of faith that I can't look at Listen, as please. the example, and that's good enough. It, it really has to be Episico. You have to have that first version of right view that something's wrong here, mm-hmm. and that I can't just look at her and say, I can do that too. It, it can't be that. It has to be that version of right view, that very first bit of understanding that that this is a, an issue and this is the, the path. Okay. The poet uh, Hafiz has, Thank you, David. The poet Hafiz, uh, uh, one of the, uh, the great uh, Muslim poets, has this wonderful little um, little poem, and it's on my fridge. And it says, <clears throat> first, the fish has to say, what am I doing on this camel ride? And why am I so damn hot? <laughs> oh, I got... This is, this is you, it feels like you guys have been hanging around me at two days. I got it. That adds, that leads to something else. So, so this, this wasn't by Hafiz, what I'm about to say. It was by this great golf writer called Herbert Warren Wind. And he, he's just, he's, if you're, if you just enjoy, enjoy great writing and don't really care too much about the subject unless you're interested in golf, read Herbert, read everything Herbert Warren Wind ever wrote. He, he was, I think, he might have been with the New Yorker magazine since the beginning. Anyway, so um, two stories that, that really relate to this. One, he knew Bobby Jones very well. Bobby Jones was one of the world's greatest golfers um, who won um, 13 majors, the greatest golf tournament you can win, in a very short career. He, he retired, I think it was before, before the age of 30, um, short seven years. and still has a reputation. This was in the 20s and 30s today as one of the greatest. And he was also one of the great, um, well, that's not all that important. Um, so on his, on his, just before his death, Bobby Jones says this to his family. Um, if this is the end, this is very peaceful. And 40 years later, Herbert Warren Wind, Wind wrote back to his friend Bobby Jones all those years later. Thanks for telling me. Mm. And then there's a story about Herbert Warren Wind. Now, Back then and on the elite courses, it was even more stodgy than today. Um, and I say that was great reverence. A, that stodginess has preserved something that I think is important. But anyway, so it had a lot of um, trappings that there, that there aren't there today, although almost every private club will have a, some kind of a dress code. But anyway, then it was, you kind of dressed up and men wore um, at least a jacket and a tie and women wore nice uh, skirts. Um, or even more than that. So Herbert Warren Wind, he was a, a big guy who really liked people to notice him, put on this this formal tweed jacket with a tweed tie and a tweed hat in the middle of July. And he walks onto the golf course and one of the members says, aren't you hot? And Herbert Warren Wind said, yes, I am. He played the game. <laughs> this, friends, is right view. And what is right intention? Being mindful of the intention to recognize and abandon wrong views. 
So uh, without intention, we can't animate ourselves at all. For me to, to for me to read a word, I have to have an intention to do that. For me to walk up to get up and grab my walker and walk out of here, I first have to have the intention to do so. Right? Everybody's following me. Anything I do, I have to animate it first by my intention. So as I deepen my concentration through that eighth factor of the eightfold path, I'm able to be more, ever more mindful, refined mindfulness, to hold in mind what is my intention in this moment. And so this doesn't become a compulsive, what is my intention in this moment? It begins its first establishment on our cushion. My intention to recognize and abandon wrong views begins with jhana practice. So every time I sit, I'm fulfilling my intention to ultimately recognize and abandon wrong views. And as I continue to use that concentration to incorporate these um, these guidance into my moment-by-moment life, I can actually do that. Recognize and abandon wrong view. How? goes right back to recognizing when the story is manifesting and what do I do? What happens? How do I abandon wrong views as they're arising? A wrong view as it arising is always going to be some, is always going to feel as some sort of agitation and distraction. And how do we drop the story? How do we drop the rock immediately? How do we avoid analysis and blame and guilt? This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. We always continue telling that resolution to the story. The end of the story, the end of my ignorant story is this is not me, this is not mine. All of this, everything that I see has nothing personally to do with me. But it's all out there for me to experience. I don't have to own a beautiful sunset to get the maximum fulfillment of experience that. I don't have to take ownership of another person to enjoy a meaningful and beautiful and gentle relationship. I don't have to take ownership of a dog to have, I'm going to cry again. (laughs) I really thought I could get through it. You know what I'm about, what I'm going to say. I don't need to say it. All that I have to do to have an incredibly meaningful life is to be present for it. And the only way I, I don't, or I'm not, the only I'm don't present for it, that doesn't make sense. The only way I'm not present is to engage in the wrong intention to not be present, to keep the story going, to keep that ignorant, painful me out into the world. Or I can do what Jen eloquently described, I can drop the story. And what is right intention? Being mindful of the intention to recognize and abandon wrong views. Being mindful of the intention to remain free from ill will. Why would I want to hate anybody or anything or any, any event? It has nothing to do with me. And really, why would I hate myself so much to insist that I remain in ignorance? And I know I'm using strong words, but that's exactly what it is, isn't it? It's a form of hatred to deny my own human, human experience, my own human life. And I am the only one that can do that in a, in, a, in a practical sense. Of course, somebody could blow my brains off out in the next minute. I should be mindful of that. I should be mindful because that's an aspect of human life that is possible for any human being. 
this can end quickly, so let's get to it. It's not likely to happen. I don't have to worry about it. But I should hold it in mind that nobody knows when the next breath is. So let me generate the right intention to do this and do this one thing. Being mindful of the intention to maintain harmless, harm, to maintain, <coughs> excuse me, being mindful of the intention to remain harmless to all beings. Every time I read this, a, a, a great calm falls over me and I think everyone else is hearing it. Because you, can, you know that that's the way to peace and calm, isn't it? To remain harmless to all beings. And who's included in all beings? And actually, who should be first in that line of all beings? Julia, can you answer? Ourselves. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Julia. This, friends, is right intention. And what is right speech? Everybody knows this. Abstaining from lying. Of course, lying to others is going to cause a lot of stress in our lives. There was a time in my life, towards the right, actually right at the end of my alcoholism, when, and this is why many alcoholism and drug addicts fall into clinical paranoia. Paranoia to the point that it, 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 it causes great harm. And the reason is, is because we have to live a lie. And that lie and where we become very, very skilled at it. It's one of the great skills of drug addicts and other persons who try to cover their compulsions rather than just live it and let other people see it. So much so that a, a person that starts lying has to maintain these lies. And if you continue to lie, you have to continue to remember every one of those lies because you're going to encounter, or you might encounter those people that you lied to. And so you have to remember an infinite number of um, discordant stories. They're different with each, each encounter and each person and each lie. And you get to the point where you realize you can't do it anymore, but you keep lying. And so you quit trying to manage the lies anymore. And now you're living in that bigger lie, aren't you? And it got, and this is, this is the honest truth. It sounds so bizarre, it's hard for me to believe. I had so many lies going, including to the telephone company and other bill collectors that I, I could not open my own mailbox. And it was a rural mailbox. And it was a big one. It could be stuffed with packages. And it got so that I could watch this out of a window. I could watch the mailman drive up. And I used to watch him drive up and put the mail in, my, in, the, in the mailbox because I knew that I didn't want to be out there when he was there because I might have to run in and tell another lie or him see me in the condition I was in. And so it got to the point where I couldn't even get the motivation or the intention to open the front door and walk to the mailbox anymore because I was terrified of what I might find in a piece of mail. And at the end of my drinking, there was a pile of packages in mail that was five feet wide and five feet high because it, nobody could deliver anymore. They couldn't fit it into the mailbox. and They could just throw it on the side of the street. That's true. That's a true story. I can't believe that I so deluded myself just so I could do one thing, have one more drink. But I did. That's the power of human thought. It's astonishing what we can do to ourselves. And maybe if there's any value to what I experience, I don't really believe there is, but maybe. 
It is just recounting these things. You know, how, how crazy we can make ourselves out of desire for something that will kill us. But in but people do that with something that is so sublime that it's so hard to recognize. Alcoholism and drug addiction is so brutal that it's easily recognized, isn't it? The problem is that it kills more people than ever stop. But an idea is much more pernicious and much more harder to recognize. The idea that I am this is the hardest addiction to ever drop. But that is the brilliance of this path. And that's the necessity for the simplicity of the path. To cut through that complexity of, that the Buddha described in, in the Gara Sutta and, and, and Jen just described earlier. And what is right speech? Abstaining from lying, abstaining from continuing to tell a story to myself and others. Abstaining from divisive speech. I'm different than you and you're different than me and you're different from everyone else. That's divisive speech. It's pointing out the, the need for me to keep my story going and the need for me to insist that you keep your ignorance going. Because my ignorance requires your ignorance, doesn't it? My ignorance requires the world to continue ignorance. Hence, vested, inner, igno- vested interest in maintaining ignorant systems. Abstaining from gossip. One of the first things I teach very young students, meaning and I've taught children as young as 10, but that, that really, I found that is really a little bit, you can could, you could start a form of meditation, but it really takes a few more years of um, of gaining the ability for some form of circumspection before you, you really, it, it, it's reasonable to start any time of Dhamma practice. And so, 13, 14, 15 is when I can, I can say something like this, and I don't get into, a, obviously, a long, elaborate thing. I teach a basic breath, and then I teach right speech in this manner as the entry point to the Dhamma. And every child, in, every child I've ever taught responds in this way. I said, do you ever notice when you're with a friend of yours and you're talking about another friend who's not there and maybe laughing at their expense, but how you feel afterwards, you don't really feel good, do you? And every kid says, no, I don't. I really don't feel good. I says, well, why don't you stop doing it? Just try stop that one thing, talking about others, because it doesn't make you feel good. And they always try it, and, and it's an easy way. I mean, what I found is, is children tend to, tend to fall into guilt even more than, mm. than we adults do. And so um, it, it led to interesting, very interesting discussions for me having to qualify what I was saying. <clears throat> but even children can understand it. And most everyone begins Dhamma practice at right speech. Does, it, does anybody ha- not? That the first thing you start incorporating is right, your right speech? And, and, it, and it, it's so... Um, it reveals the brilliance again of this teaching. Because of course, we engage in the world through our speech and we engage with ourselves through our internal speech, our internal story, isn't it? So abstaining from gossip. And abstaining, this is the big one, folks. This is what we practice on all of our our retreats. Abstaining from idle chatter. What is idle chatter? Idle chatter is anything that continues eye-making. And it's the hardest and most rewarding thing we can ever do for ourselves. But it can seem very restrictive, doesn't it? Because most of our speech, you know, an unqualified estimation would be 90 to 95% of our speech, including our inner dialogue. 
is idle chatter. And we first counter that idle chatter where in jhana meditation. And how does it manifest in our feelings and our thoughts through the other factors of the Eightfold Path and the present quality of our mind, that fourth foundation of mindfulness. And when we abstain, or when we begin to abstain from idle chatter, that fourth foundation of mindfulness is ever more calm, isn't it? And ever more apparently calm, isn't it? Because we are recognizing that we're dropping, we're beginning to diminish the story and dropping chapters of the story that we've maintained. And it's such a beautiful analogy, isn't it? Because that's actually what we're doing. We're dropping ever increasingly less important chapters of ignorance from our lives. And we're getting to the beginning of the story, aren't we? And we're beginning to recognize the introduction to this is not me, this is not mine. The first thought rooted in ignorance is that introduction to this is... And the, the, entr- the exit, the dropping of the introduction, the stopping of the story is to say, this is not me, this is not mine. We're undoing that initial thought of this is me, this is mine, I want this. This is my establishment in the world. Abstaining from idle chatter. And so, as you're incorporating this, this eightfold path, and in particular this aspect, when you find yourself, uh, probably 15 or 20 seconds after you, we shut this, end this class, and you find yourself engaged in idle chatter, please do not judge yourself harshly because you're just being a human being. You're being an ordinary human being who is on the path to awakening. And so gently acknowledge, this is not something I want to engage in. And even if it's a conversation that you can't gracefully disengage in, meaning it would be harsh to the other person to simply cut off the conversation because you recognize your wrong speech, continue it until it's appropriate, until you have an out. And that's an aspect of of being gentle in the world. And if it ever comes up as to why you ended the conversation rather quickly or um, why you simply wanted to drop it, you can explain what you're doing. That you don't want to continue to talk about something that really has no meaning. <laughs> why? And then, and you know, you really know who your friends are when you can just be with people that, are, that you don't have to engage in idle chatter, right? Mm-hmm. And those are true friends. And that doesn't mean that... that Friendships that have to be main have to be maintained by idle chatter or bad relationships. They're not. They're not even contrary to the Dhamma. They're just there to recognize the, the, the foolishness of engaging in that. But also we have to recognize that we're human beings and we have to live in a world that lives on, literally lives on and thrives on idle chatter. The great systems we built up in recent times, Facebook, you know. Uh, what did Twitter and, and Instacart, Instacart, Instacart. Um, they're all aspects of this, aren't they? Of how, a great way to make a lot of money on people's compulsion for idle chatter and wrong speech. I mean, it's, it's a, it really is astonishing when you think about the money that people have made by this one human compulsion. I wish I had thought of it. But I thought of something else. Abstaining from idle chatter, all of that the Buddha characterized this way. This, friends, is right speech, right speech, abstaining from these things. That's all, consciously, mindfully abstaining from this. 
And what is right action? Abstaining from taking life. You know, that's a big one, isn't it? Of course. None of us are likely murderers, and if we are, it's okay. Remember uh, Angela Milla, the most bloodthirsty murderer of the Buddha's time. And the Buddha didn't forgive him, meaning grant him uh, dispensation from his crimes. He forgave him by never judging him harshly. And he taught Angela Milla the basics too, so he could resolve. And that all of those horrible things that he did, and all of that, that horrible guilt that was <clears throat> driving him to kill again, the Buddha said, Angela Milla, that was not you. And Angela Milla understood that none of it was him. Some would say, well, due to the laws of karma, that Angela Milla must suffer 99 horrible deaths. That's ignorance, isn't it? That's not karma. Karma has nothing to do with that type of retribution or punishment. That would be an evil Buddha, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be a man, a human being, who developed understanding and taught others how to do the same, including murderers. And so he began with saying, right action is abstaining from taking life, not because of Angela Milla, because he understands that first, because of the dialogue we have in our minds and project out in the world, we take other people's lives by insisting they be different. We don't allow them to be who they are. Maybe rooted in deep ignorance. I had a great conversation with Julia last night. Thank you, Julia. About the manifestation of ignorance of, of someone very important to her. And how Julia was able to recognize that's just a person re resting in ignorance or reacting from ignorance. And not take it personally. And how this woman was holding a view of Julia that was rooted when Julia was rooted in a view of Julia as an as a young adolescent, rather than now as an as a young adult, and Julia was able to free that that reaction, and regain the relationship in its true form. Now the other person is still the same, isn't she, and likely will not change, but Julia developed a calm and peaceful mind in that moment, right, Julia? Oh, yes. Do you, and you don't have to describe it anymore. I realize it was very personal to you. But if you want to talk about it, please do so. And it's okay to say you'd rather not. Oh, I can share. I don't mind. Um, I think it's a good example. Um, basically, there is this relationship that I had with this woman who I lived with for a couple of years um, in like five or six years ago. Um, talk regularly and she the only time we have a conversation is if she's trying to counsel me other than like I can describe how she counsels like, you Julia please I'm sorry to interrupt you what'd you say what is the nature of her counseling how, what, how does, I, I might tell you I might I might remind you of what we talked about because I, I think you might be going in a direction so she she counsel do by pointing out all your faults yes and not like offering I any resolution she would ask me i don't try try not to get too personal with her because when i get personal and i tell her what's actually what's going on um you know in some aspects and she'll point out the things i did wrong when i explain what's happened and um rather than encouraging me so she'll point out all the things, yeah, my flaws in it and keep questioning me. And like, it felt like she's just like nitpicks me um, rather than just listening. She'll try to like, can't like 
give me advice and I don't know. And just, it just doesn't feel good when I, I feel worse when I'm done having a conversation with her. That's it. There we go. Yeah. And, and so Julie and I had a discussion and she recognized that this, this relates to just this aspect of, um, you know, all of the, all of these right aspects of the eightfold path, but in particular, this, this idle chatter that this friend of Julia's insisted that Julia maintain because it was the idle chatter that she had going on in her mind. Julia is a broken human being that I'm fixing. And Julia's um, skillful resistance or skillful recognition that she no longer wants to see herself as a broken human being. And it's because she made a very significant change that I don't need to mention. It's not all that significant, but it is hugely significant to a human being trying to re-enter the world in her life. And she engaged in Dhamma practice. And she, and so she's, she's, she's experiencing her skillful desire to stop that inner idle chatter and feels that resistance when another person is insisting that she continue to engage in that. Is everybody seeing what I'm talking about? Making the it's connection. like our, our our relationship was based off of my problems. Like she just yeah. tried to like dig deeper when really I'm fine. Like honestly, like yeah. and and it just felt like she was just trying to make me not make me, but like she just tried to nitpick everything that's going wrong in my life. But I was like going on a bike ride with my dad, and I was feeling really good in that moment, and there was nothing absolutely wrong until. You know, she calls me and then she's like digging deep in the past and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you don't need to see you. you you've dropped a story to a great extent, Julia. And, and that, that's all that it is, you know, and again, and we, just to finish the conversation and we came to the, a resolution and understanding of why that was happening. It's not that that this person is an awful, evil person. It's just not it's someone who, who Julia knows loves her, but simply doesn't understand how to express it anymore and let go of that view of a broken Julia. And, and there's many people. In the, um, my father and I had a great relationship until the day he died at 101. It was, it was, he was my best friend. And he always saw me as, as slightly broken. He, you know, he couldn't get past it, but, but it, didn't, it didn't affect our relationship. And he was always nudging me... Um, to fix myself, even though, you know, but at his, by the time he died, I was, I think I was 40 years from free of a drink. I never, you know, but he was still thinking that I had to keep doing this. And he still saw me, um, at my, at my worst. But of course a, a father would do that, wouldn't they? they? It's hard for them to let go of how they saw him, their son almost kill themselves over and over again. And so of course that caution, that condition because he never had any vehicle to get through that and, and abandon that view, is always there. And again, not to get too deep into that, but there's, um, it was for me to understand why that was happening and not for me to insist that my father no longer treat me at 60 years old like a 15-year-old, you know? Parents tend to do that. Oh, yeah. That's it. Okay, so I, I think I explained that <laughs> well enough. And so abstaining from taking life, character assassination, whether it's our own character or others, is an aspect of taking life. 
Abstain from taking what is not freely given, including another's emotions or another's thoughts. Or another's pack of gum. It's just, again, it's the, it's the most utterly practical advice, isn't it? Abstain from taking what is not freely given. And this is when it gets so many people so confused because they don't simply apply the rest of the Eightfold Path to this. Abstaining from sexual misconduct. The Buddha never said abstain from sexual conduct. He did say abstain from sexual misconduct. Why did he have to point out one um, almost insignificant aspect of behavior along with all the other aspects? Because this is one that human beings, and he recognized it during his time, because the Buddha, yes, he did have a lot of sex when he was younger. He wasn't wasn't born and lived chaste. His father gave him, as soon as he was able to perform in this way, one young girl after another. And it wasn't wrong and it wasn't rape and it wasn't anything. It was the culture. So again, the Buddha was talking from direct knowledge. He understood what occurred to his mind when he started talking, seeing women as only for sexual conquest. And the difficulties that happen around a person who is compulsive in that way. And so he said, abstain from sexual misconduct. What is sexual misconduct? It's using the, these other negative aspects of human behavior as part of our sexual life. But when, sex, when our sexual behavior is rooted in the qualities of generosity, and mindful presence and concentration and not taking what is not freely given, mm. but giving freely of yourself. Can you, I know you, uh, I'm going to say it this way. We're all adults, right? Well, <clears throat> the best sex I ever had is when I wasn't thinking about myself. Mm. And I think you would all agree, isn't it? Yeah. So this is perfect instruction if we can do it in one of this, the most Intense of human acts. And do it without you in it, without any eye making. That's wonderful sex, isn't it? And it leads to an incredibly um, gentle relationship, isn't it? Because the place where we could be most demanding of the one we love we know we, is, is now the place for our greatest generosity. And again, I'm not talking about the act itself. That really is secondary, isn't it, to a, to a real relationship with a human being. I think you it have should to be remember. more an expression <clears throat> at that point and always. And it can be the highest expression of how we feel about another human being. If we can give freely and not take what is not freely given. I think we, Jenny, please. We and have, then I, I know Tom <coughs> spoke a little earlier. Oh, we always need to be reminded that we need to drop the story. We need to be fully present. This is not me, this is not mine. And so, you know, there's certain behaviors that we can engage in that will be more likely to lead to eye-making. And those are behaviors that are intense or that generate intense sensations that arise within us and that 
intensity can be distracting, can cause yeah. eye making, can cause clinging and craving, which is why the Buddha is pointing it out because this is a place, this is a space where we really need to be focused on staying present and not moving away from what's occurring. Yeah. Including what is one of the most fun things we'll ever do, right? Rob, please. Yeah. No, I, I just remembered um, uh, at one point when my, my son was in high school, um, uh, I think it was part of his assignment in, in secular education, which in his school was very good, uh, <clears throat> was to talk to his parents about sex. And uh, when we talked, the only meaningful thing that I, I could think of telling him was to to have that um, that consciousness of being aware of the other person and and just not be focused on yourself. Yeah. Uh, that's the only thing that I could come up yeah. with as far as what, what I could tell him from my experience yeah. and, and my practice at that time. Yeah. That, that that's a good dad there. That's a good dad. So you know, I always have a story about something, and here comes one. Um, there's uh, I won't mention a name because this gentleman he comes occasionally, um, once a year it seems like. Anyway, he um, he he got an interest in Buddhism at an early. I think he said he was seventeen or eighteen, and eventually joined a monastery and took his vows. Uh, and within a monastery. Um, Vows of celibacy are important. And within the, the Buddha's original Sangha, there was, um, uh, they agreed to abstain from uh, sexual conduct, but that was for a reason, because the Buddha understood the distractions and of, uh, of sexual relationships will be. And so these are men and women who come to the original Sangha with the stated desire that I'm coming here to learn the Dhamma period. And so engaging and using that setting for romantic relationships would just be foolish, wouldn't it? It, it, it just would get, they instantly get, lose, you lose the Dhamma. It just doesn't, con in that setting, it's not conducive to Dhamma practice. So that's the only reason. But other than that, the Buddha never taught um, celibacy. So the, the, this young man went into this a monastery, took the vows of celibacy, and really started having difficulty with it. Uh, so much so that while during his stay, he turned to pornography to relieve the, the pressure that became unbearable for him. And that led to an addiction to pornography. That was, um, and that, I've, I've talked with many people that use the 12 steps in the Eightfold Path um, to guide people through getting out of that addiction as well. And it, it is in some ways more difficult for people that have actually developed it, especially to the extent that this... Um, poor man had um, and it was because after he after he fell into pornography and felt so now unworthy to be a monk mm. guilt on top of guilt everything and he told me words that you know are, are just so poignant and he said every time every time I hit the button I think he said every time I click the button or click the link um, the guilt increased every time. And then he said, and yet I kept clicking the links and clicking the links. And he couldn't understand why. But, but eventually, 
Um, he was able to, I, I used the 12 steps, it, much like I did with somebody on screen, in fact, exactly that same way. And then we introduced the Eightfold Path, much like I did with someone on screen. And um, eventually he was able to gain some abstinence from pornography. But this is, um, I think, 15 years ongoing. And he's never been able to stay away from it. It's really sad. For about more than six months and all that time. But when he has that, that, that clean time, he tells me, and he, we, we still have a relationship, and again, he'll, he comes on once or twice a year. He says, those are the best times of my life when I'm free of that compulsion. But, and again, it's his life to live. It's not wrong that he's not doing something wrong in a human sense that he keeps falling back into his addiction. Of course, he's doing something wrong in, in the reference to, to the Eightfold Path, but that's the only way that should be seen. It's just, it's just not skillful, but he's not a... He's not a damaged or bad human being. He's doing what he wants. And he recognizes when he falls into these, this pattern of addiction again, that it's his choice. And he also understands it's his choice that he can't do anything about right now, but he keeps trying. And that's all anybody can do, isn't it? And so when I meet someone like that, I realize how fortunate I am to have been able to drop my story so many years ago and not pick it up again. And the only, only way I can... The only explanation I have is, is sobriety first and then the Dhamma practice that I've had. Ram, are you going to say something? No. Okay. All right, I, I'll, I'll try and get through this class yeah, rather quickly. I'll be, I'll be leaving in a few minutes. Okay, well, this is it. We're almost done. And what is right livelihood? Following those same principles. Right livelihood abandons dishonest livelihood. Right livelihood is honest livelihood. Just a very quick explanation. When I went through the Eightfold Path, I was wondering why did the Buddha put right livelihood in here, isn't that covered by right speech and right action, until I realized something that I knew and observed, that otherwise good and honest men and women, when it was time to put food on the table for family, um, they might take uh, minor transgressions for that. And even that has to be recognized and abandoned. Um, right livelihood is honest livelihood. This, friends, is right livelihood. Simple and direct, isn't it? And what is right effort? Right effort is effort developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence, keep going, to avoid unskillful qualities that are not present. What are unskillful qualities? Any, any qualities that lead to continued eye-making. Right effort is effort developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence, we keep going, to abandon unskillful qualities that are present. What are those, pre- those qualities that are present? Those qualities that agitate when I'm eye-making. This is not me, this is not mine. This is not what I am. Right effort is effort developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence. We just keep going to establish skillful qualities that are not yet present. We don't keep grasping a future eye-making. So some people are so enamored with their spiritual practice, they go from one to another, to another, Mm -hmm. to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, all trying to fix a broken self. And because that first stop didn't give it to them quickly, didn't satisfy their their need for ego satisfaction while seeking healing, another and another and another. That's not ongoing persistence. Ongoing persistence relates to the eightfold path and no other path. It's the only way it can be done. If you're engaged in a path, drop the path, drop their story, drop the rock. Right effort is effort developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence to end confusion. Confusion related to 
and regarding Four Noble Truths, and increase the full development of skillful qualities that are present. What are those skillful qualities? The Eightfold Path. In particular, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. When we're engaged in those three um, aspects, you could say moral aspects, but morality really doesn't have a lot to do with it, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, we are good to go. Because there is no other behavior that's human behavior that's not addressed by right speech, right action, or the, the practice of that in right livelihood. Everything we do is either comes out of our mouth or it comes by our, by our actions, by our movements through the world. This, friends, is right effort. And what is right mindfulness? Right mindfulness is re- remaining mindful of the body, free of distraction. That's jhana. That's concentration. <clears throat> mindful of the body. Remaining mindful. This is here. I'm, I'm in this human life. Right here, right now. Free of distraction. That's the first aspect of my right mindfulness. Refined mindfulness. Ardent. Ardent. I'm, I'm, I, I am maintaining this eightfold path. Alert. I'm engaged here. I'm, I'm present. And mindful in the moment of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. No matter what occurs in the world, no matter what arises and passes away, has nothing to do with me. But I can certainly experience it, and that's human life. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of feelings, arising and passing away. That's all they are. Every feeling is a fleeting feeling and is as meaningless and meaningless as that except to bring meaning to this moment. Arising and passing away, these feelings, free of distraction, ardent, alert and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. Reaction occurring in our feelings. That's why they're there, folks. That's why human beings have feelings. Why? For the sole purpose of waking up. It's our feelings and our thoughts about our feelings that drive our maturity, our maturation process. Why not taking them personally, right? It's only a child that feels good because he can't get that second cookie out of the cookie jar. It's immaturity that drives that kind of disappointment, isn't it? And we understand that in a child. But adults shouldn't be disappointed because they can't get that second cookie or that second brand new car or the trophy wife or or trophy husband or et cetera, et cetera. All All the foolish things that we grasp after that deny our human existence and another person's existence in this moment. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of the mental qualities that arise and pass away. Free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of the quality of mind arising and passing away. Our quality of mind will always change. And sometimes our quality of mind will be sad. And sometimes it might be elated. Sometimes the quality of mind of an awakened person might, in previous mind reference, be characterized as anger. But in this moment, that now is just the strong determination, the mindful willingness to continue the Dhamma. And when we see it arising in someone else that we're trying to help along the way, it might appear to that person as anger. 
And this is why as Dhamma teachers or simply as Dhamma practitioners living in the world, we also have to practice great gentleness. Because even sometimes our example of awakening human beings can seem harsh and contradictory and contrary to the way other peoples live their lives and they may and will react to it. I'm going to read that again in relation to that. Right, Mindfulness is remaining mindful of the quality of mind arising and passing away. All people's minds arise and pass away. Wise Dharma practitioners maintain a refined mindfulness within that normal function of mind. Free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. It is the understanding of the ever-changing nature of the quality of mind that allows us to abandon greed and reaction in relation to worldly events. Thank you for, uh, for hanging so long. Sorry the class is going on for no, so long. That's right. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you Tuesday. And what is right meditation? Again, we don't have to even be confused about meditation, do we? Or the, or the right method. For one who has developed right meditation, this is what we can expect. Their concentration increases. <clears throat> And they withdraw from the need for sensual stimulations. That's the first um, measurement or qualification you should apply to your Dhamma practice. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases and they withdraw from the need for sensual stimulation. Is that occurring? If not, there's some aspect of your meditation practice that needs... a minor or major adjustment, and it might just be in your intention. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases, and they withdraw from unskillful mental qualities. What are mental qualities? Those that are causing agitation and distraction to me. And, And where do they, how do I recognize them? Where will they manifest? In wrong speech, wrong action, and in my livelihood, always. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases and they enter and remain in the first jhana, the first level of meditative absorption, which is, which is joyful engagement and pleasure in the Dhamma born from withdrawal or born from seclusion. It's established in that first, first breath of our meditation practice. And it's also then accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in directing my thought away from distracting, distracted thoughts and back to my breath. That's all it is mean by directed thought. Directed thought and evaluation. I'm judging in that first level of jhana, I'm evaluating or judging my practice. And that could have, uh, make, uh, take all kinds of forms, such as, am I doing it right? I'm doing it wrong. It's too hard. It's too long. That bald guy in French, you know, that isn't mine. I have to get to the store. I have to get to my friend. Blah, blah, blah. All of it. That is accompanied by directed thought. So when I get caught up in that thought, I direct it back to my breath and I cease evaluating it as I move into the deeper levels of jhana. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases and their directed thoughts and mindful evaluation quiets. This is sinking into the second jhana. That's the wrong characterization. Developing the second jhana. They enter and remain in the second jhana the second level of meditative absorption, which is joyful engagement and pleasure born of deepening concentration. Again, we we should be taking pleasure that 
this Dhamma practice, which is literally going to save our lives in the way that it changes it, why not be joyful? Or we should be joyful. Or we should recognize that we can generate joy about this by how we focus on it, what we think we're doing. And if it's, if it's framed and characterized and guided by the Eightfold Path, it will result in joyful engagement and continuing this sutta and pleasure born of deepening concentration free from directed thought and mindful evaluation and confident within. As concentration increases, excuse me, as concentration increases, we become ever more joyful or enraptured, that, that, that word rapture, joyful engagement. But it's not a distracted or um, even an enervating type of joy. It's a joy, simply a, a pure knowing that I'm doing what I want to do and it's bearing its results. I want to deepen my concentration. There, I, re- I just recognize it. How? Because I was able to, f- to recognize that I was caught up in my story again. Remember how all this started. And in this moment, I dropped a story. I bring it back to my breath. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. And that quality of mind is described as equanimity. Equanimity arises with mindfulness of pleasure. I'm sorry. Equanimity arises with mindfulness of pleasure in a mind united with their body. A mind united in their body is resting in equanimity. Everything is balanced. We have established the middle way of living in the world. They enter and remain in the third jhana. The wise know this level of jhana as equanimous and mindful. They're entering into this deeper level of mindfulness that they only now characterize as true mindfulness. We're recognizing a useful, as, a, as opposed to the worshipful kind of mindfulness that's bandied about in modern New Age circles, meaning if I, if I can be mindful of washing the dishes, that's good, I'm good to go. <clears throat> How great I am. The wise know this as equanimous and mindful, a pleasant abiding. Recognize that in your practice and in your sitting. When that pleasant abiding arises, and for, mo- for most of us in the beginning, it's for just a brief moment or two, but it's wonderful, isn't it? A pleasant abiding within yourself, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful of being a human being. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases, their mind rests in equanimity. The fourth level of jhana. Neither pleasure nor pain have a footing. They're not here anymore. I don't have to grasp after them. I've done it. They enter remain in the fourth jhana. Their mindfulness and equanimity is pure, free of all wrong views rooted in the ignorance of four noble truths. This, friends, is right meditation. This is what the Buddha declared 2,600 years ago. Those gathered were gratified and delighted in his words. I think we all are the same today. Thank you for listening. I'm sorry it went so long. Um, Let's go. Is Julia still with us? I can't tell. Yes. Hi. Hi, Julia. I'm glad you were able to stay with us. Yeah. Um, great class. Um, I don't really have anything to share, but thank you, John. Yeah. Very thank, much. Thank you for joining us today. Mary, how are you today? Good morning. I'll also take noble silence. Thanks, John. Thank you. I also have to get on the road. Thank you for joining, Mary. 
Thank you. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. Um, I have a short comment that there is no story if you're a reference point to what's occurring. <laughs> yeah, nice. What's that? What does that say? Enough nice. said. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. I hope to talk to you later or soon. I'll, I'll email you after class. Todd, thank you. I'm a teacher, Jen. Hi, I feel like I said enough today. I think we're done. Good to talk to everybody. <laughs> thank you, Jen. Thank you, David. Thank you for the class, John. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you all for being a part of it. We'll finish with Meta quickly. Wait till you guys see how fast I can read. <laughs> this is what should be done. I was really good. This one was about a piece. <laughs> You're fast. <laughs> the do you want to do it? <laughs> okay, you ready? Ready. Find your... your <laughs> take, take a moment to be mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mind unite your... that breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, John. Peace. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.